Yeah, so we're getting near the end of Galatians. We have this week, we have next week. Next week, we're going to talk about bearing one another's burdens. I didn't want to skip that. And that means we have to talk about the fruit of the Spirit all in one week. So I can't go into quite the same depth I would like to on each of the various um, parts of fruit or fruit that are listed here. There's no good way to say it. It's one of the fascinating things about this passage is that most everybody thinks that it says fruits of the Spirit, and they're content if they pick out a couple from the list that they seem to exhibit in their lives, but it actually doesn't say that. It says fruit singular, and there's no way for us to talk about parts of the fruit or I, I don't know how to say it. Fruit is basically a multifaceted way to describe holiness and to describe character that the gospel should produce in you. And so we're going to talk about that tonight. Now, I, I think the reason this matters is for so many, I think we just get sucked into the American dream so easily. You know, uh, this guy, Steve Garber, who's been to Belmont to speak uh, some for Spiritual Emphasis Week, great guy, mentor of mine, and, and guy Shemaleski's as well. Um, he just came out with a new book on vocation, and I highly recommend that to you guys. But um, I remember him talking about his story. Basically, he was in college, like y'all were, in a journalism class, and the professor said, you know, what we really need are not so many people to write. Um, we, not, we don't need so many people to write. We need more people with something to say. And as he sat in that class, he realized, I'm not learning what needs to be said in a class like this, and he quit college, and he went off to Europe and eventually landed at a place called Labrie, um, and, and, I, and I thought about this, and I thought one of the questions he's always asking people, particularly college students, is will your education be for you a passport to a life of privilege, or will it be a way to equip you and implicate you in the brokenness of the world in a way that will engage you in it. Now, what I want you to understand is the American dream gets sort of mapped onto the gospel in really gross ways sometimes. And before we know it, before we know it, we've turned the gospel into basically a way to make us feel better about who we are and what we're like. But God's agenda is bigger than that. The point of the gospel is not just to make you okay with who you are. Though everything we've been hearing about our identity in Christ and justification, all that is true. But the theology of, that helps us understand that in God's sight we are beautiful because of what Christ did, that's supposed to move us somewhere. It's supposed to move us to exhibiting holiness, becoming more like Christ the Spirit's purpose in our lives, the Spirit that Paul says here in Galatians 5 we're to keep in step with, is to change us into his likeness and into his character. And really the heart of Galatians is this question. Is the gospel big enough to do that? Is the gospel big enough to change us? Actually change us. Is it just sort of this frosting that we put over our life so that we feel better about ourselves? Or is it actually a power that should be at work in our lives? Is the smile of God that comes from what Jesus did big enough to actually change the things that you obsess over? Change the amount of worry in your life? To bring peace, love, joy, self-control? 
That's what Paul's after here. God wants to change our character. He doesn't want to just help us to live with it. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is about. The fruit basically is this. Gospel-created character produced by that doctrine, that true gospel doctrine warming our hearts and changing everything. The deeds of the flesh come from living under the law. They are the inevitable results of not believing the gospel. And on the flip side, the gospel should change us. So let's look at this passage. We're going to talk, we'll pick up at verse 16. Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit. So Paul says this. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not able to do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says live like this habitually. Doesn't mean that if you fall into one of these things that your Christian Life is thus over. But Christians should look different because the gospel is a power. And it's at work in your life, it will be seen. Then he goes on, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the work of the Spirit, the power at work in your life is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you that here in this passage you lay things out so clearly. And Lord, it's a little uncomfortable how clear you lay things out. Um, Lord, we pray that we would see your grace and your mercy that has power to make us different people and help us to be sobered and humbled, but also deeply encouraged as we study this portion of your word tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you know, here, here's what I want. I want to make a few comments about fruit. I want to introduce this idea that there is such a thing as fruit. There is such a thing as the weeds that f- block out the fruit that are kind of the opposite of it. But then there also is the counterfeit, the satanic counterfeit of each of the fruits. And in a lot of ways, you know, people who've been raised in church will look at this list and they're like, okay, as long as I don't do, you know, verses 19 through 21, and as long as I've got some of verse 22, 23 somewhere in my life, then everything's great. And what I want to suggest is not so fast. Here's what I mean. Jonathan Edwards, great uh, American Puritan 
pastor, theologian, uh, wrote a very important, very famous book called Charity and Its Fruits. It comes from the King James Version of the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, where it talks, the word there is charity rather than love. But it's the same word. And he talks about love and its fruits. And in that, he makes this very important point. He says, fruit, here in Galatians, is singular, not plural. And, and what he goes on to say is that by nature, by temperament, even by sort of your own discipline, it's possible for you, kind of in your own strength, to manifest one or more of these characteristics that Paul calls fruit. And I know when I was your age, I certainly thought about this this way. I thought, well, you know, I'm not so good with uh, joy. I kind of find it hard to get excited about things. But, um, you know, I'm faithful, uh, gentleness, I wish that wasn't on the list. Um, self-control, I've got a lot of self-control. Very high in the fruit of self-control. So I guess I'm a Christian and I should feel good about my Christian experience and my Christian walk. And then it, when I became exposed to what Jonathan Edwards said here, I was like, oh gosh, really? Like, what he says is, if you don't have all of these you have to wonder whether you have the fruit of the Spirit. Now, again, I don't want you to go away and like beat yourself up, but you should understand that when Paul uses the singular of fruit here, what he's saying is not, here's a list of 10 things. Like on a, you know, if you ever are like applying for a job and you're looking like, what are the characteristics they're looking for? You're like, well, I've got like seven or eight of them. There's 10, but I got seven or eight. It's pretty good. I qualify. I should try out for this. I should, I should go on an interview. That's not what Paul's saying here. Paul's not saying, you know, do you have some of these? He's saying this is what Christian character produced by the gospel looks like. Very contrasted to the deeds of the flesh. And it's continuing that living under bondage of the law, which is trying to get God's smile by your own efforts, will inevitably produce all kinds of crazy stuff. The fruit of the Spirit the fruit of the Spirit is very different, and it's all of these things. So um, here's the way Tim Keller says it. Now, I found a couple people helpful. Edwards, there's an old professor from Covenant Seminary, I'm not even sure if he's still alive, named John Sanderson, who wrote a little book on the fruit of the Spirit. It's actually a great little book to do a small group on. And um, he's the guy, actually, that Keller got a lot of this stuff from. Um, it's always fun when you, you hear something Keller says, and you're like, oh, that's really profound. And then you read a book, and you're like, oh, that's where he got that. Um, and this is one of those, so Sanderson, Keller, Jonathan Edwards are all kind of developing this idea of the fruit, the weeds, and then the uh, counterfeit fruit. And, and here's the way Keller puts it, I think is very helpful. He says, when we look at the fruit list, and there actually are more lists of fruit in the New Testament than just this one. But when we look at them, we notice that we are naturally stronger in some rather than others. But our strengths, apart from the spirit, are due to natural temperament. We have a trait through brain chemistry and early training, perhaps. Or they're to, because of natural self-interest. In other words, we learned a trait to handle some issue or condition that we met. John, the Apostle John says, if a man says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Notice he does not say he's unbalanced. He says he's a liar. True love to God goes along with love to others, or what Paul calls kindness here in Galatians 5. If they are not all there, they are not there at all. See, I had to come to realize that my fruit of self-control that I 
prided myself and I used really in a lot of ways when I wondered if I was really a Christian, um, I often would turn to the fruit of self-control and say, well, I've got a lot of self-control and therefore I must be a Christian and I must be a strong Christian. And then I came to realize that maybe what I was calling the fruit of self-control was really the satanic counterfeit of killing my longings so that I wouldn't be hurt. And that was devastating to realize. It's very possible by temperament, even by things you've experienced, ways you've been hurt, to naturally gravitate and even develop some of these things. But the goal is to see all of these at work in your life. So if fruit really is a multifaceted way of describing Christian holiness, which is what I'm arguing for here and what I think is, is, is really the case, then there's a couple implications we need to say off the bat. First, beware of looking at your natural strengths as a sign of your Christ-likeness. Fruit can be counterfeited for a while. Your temperament can masquerade as spirituality. Second, beware of trusting in your gifts. It is fascinating. We're in a situation, unfortunately, I think one of the things that concerns me most about the celebrity pastor phenomenon is the way gifts are so admired and um, focused on more than character. It's hard to know the character of somebody that you've never met, but you've only listened to and seen on videos. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't think that you would benefit from all those things, but if you're doing that as a substitute for being under the ministry of a pastor who actually is a real person that you can know, uh, I think that that's a problem. There are so many, you know, even today I heard about two new, you know, big evangelical pastors who've had a fall, moral fall. We focus so much on gifts And Paul wants us to focus on fruit, character. It's said that John Newton, who wrote that hymn, I asked the Lord that I might grow, it said that he was really not a very good preacher. But people knew that he loved him. He was an excellent pastor. If you ever read his letters, there are actually numerous volumes of his letters where he basically pastorally counsels people, and they're fabulous to read. Um, There's actually a letter that goes along with that, I asked the Lord that I might grow, where he talks about the advantages of remaining sin and why God would let you still struggle and what he produces through that. But he wasn't a very good preacher, but people loved him, so they put up with his preaching. They did, right? Robert Murray McShane, that guy that was really a hero of mine when I was your age and I found his little biography in a used bookstore, said one time that a holy minister is a terrible weapon in the hand of God. And I I don't know if you pray for me, but I wish you would pray for me more. (laughs) Because character is not something that you, like, get just automatically. Like, Sue Ann, I appreciate it so much you said that. Like, you can admire certain things, but not really want the path that generally produces those things. I remember in seminary, one of our professors struggled with cancer. He's still alive, which is amazing, because I went to seminary and graduated in 95, and even then he'd been struggling with cancer for a few years. And I remember one time after he had preached in seminary and we were at chapel, and then we went down to our Greek class, and the Greek professor said, you know, we all admire Dr. Calhoun, and we all admire, like, his gentle 
uh, spirit and this kind of calmness even in the face of death. But none of us would trade um, our lives with him and what he's going through over and over, reoccurring cancer and chemo and again and again and again. Paul would suggest that fruit is much more important than gifts. Gifts are important, but fruit is vital, right? Now, the acts of the sinful nature are like weeds. That doesn't exactly come out of Galatians. It comes from elsewhere in the Bible, but listen to this. In Jeremiah 17, God says that living apart from him is like a worthless desert plant, a weed, Weeds are worthless because they have no divine life to produce them. They are the products of hatred for God. They may masquerade as fruit for a while, but soon their weed-like character will be apparent. That's what John Sanderson said. And what you see, the verses I didn't read right before this, Paul talks about these Galatians are biting and devouring one another. In other words, one of the key things the Galatians says is the gospel you believe, quote-unquote gospel you believe, will have effects in your life. And if you believe the false gospel that the false teachers are bringing to the Galatians, the idea that you need to keep God's smile by your own efforts, if you believe that, it will inevitably destroy your community. Because you'll start tearing each other down because you'll have this hole in your soul. The insecurity that that just drives you in so many ways will never be satisfied by what your friends think about you, by what you're able to accomplish. And if you don't have some way, some way of finding peace with God in the gospel, then you will inevitably bite and devour one another and tear one another down. You know, it's, uh, yeah, the weeds are there. And not only that, but these weeds, you know, these ways of living apart from God, apart from trusting God, um, are fighting against the production of fruit in your life. Now, the weeds are the opposite of the fruit, violation of God's law. The fruit are basically, here's what's fascinating, the fruit here are what theologians call the communicable attributes of God. We talk about who is God. He's holy, he's omnipotent, he's omnipresent, that means he's all-powerful, that means he's everywhere. There are certain attributes of God that are incommunicable. You can't be them, you can't get them, you can't be omnipresent no matter how holy you are. Okay? You can't be omnipotent, all-powerful, or omniscient. But there are some things. God is kind. God is loving. God is patient. These are what we call the communicable attributes of God. And do you understand that when the Spirit comes to live in you and wants to make you look more like Jesus, what he's doing is he's producing in you the communicable attributes of God. Isn't that a mind-blowing idea? that you could become like God in that sense. But there are these weeds, and then there are these counterfeits. I'm going to talk about two of them, show you how this works, and that's basically all we're going to have time for tonight, okay? But bear with me. Let's look at love. Now, in Galatians, it seems clear that love he's talking about here is love for other people. Because he's talking in a context, relational context, 
when he's talking about the fruit and when he's talking about the deeds of the flesh. He's talking about their community. He's talking about the way the doctrine that they believe is working itself out in their community. Love for others. Um, I can't remember if it was Sanderson or Keller, but it says it this way. To serve a person for their good and intrinsic value, not for what they bring to you. It's interesting. Actually, the Bible describes love way more than it defines it. Okay? But what is, what is the weeds? In other words, what are the things that choke out the fruit of love in a community or in your life? There's a couple. The first is fear and self-protection. If fear and self-protection are dominant in your life, then love will be very hard to manifest or be produced. First uh, John 4.18 puts it this way. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So the degree to which you would say, I don't, I don't see much love in my life for other people. You might think, well, I just need to try harder. But what I would suggest, what I think the Bible would suggest is you need to look. Is there fear in my life? Is there just sort of uh, just a need to protect myself because of fear that is fighting against love. You don't produce the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, by your own self-effort. You can produce the counterfeit fruit by your self-effort. But true love that's the fruit of the Spirit is something the Spirit produces. And if you're not seeing it in your life, you may want to say, are the weeds choking out this manifestation of the fruit? Is fear and self-protection maybe more rooted in my heart than I realize? Another weed, though, is hatred. Using and abusing people. Again, 1 John talks about this. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Love is... And being a Christian go hand in hand. But, you know, I think so often we buy, you know, we, what you can do is you read a list like you and say, well, I need to have love in my life, so let me try and do that. Let me try and wump that up. The production of these, the fruit of the Spirit is because of the gospel warming your heart. It's not because you decide to focus on it. You never, you know, heard the story about Ben Franklin and how he made the list, right, of the characteristics that he thought you know, made for a mature, you know, person, and then he basically started working on them. You ever hear this story, right? Yeah, everybody hears this story, right? Until he got to, what was it, humility? And, he, you know, he kind of had a list, and each week he was going to work on one, you know, one characteristic. And after about three or four weeks, he was doing pretty well, and then he got to humility, and he realized he felt proud of his accomplishments, and he kind of scrapped the whole thing. You know, he's a pretty methodical guy. You can't do that with these things, but I think sometimes if you look at your life and say, I don't see love, I need to make it happen, what you do then is you try to produce limited love. If you know the story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus, and Jesus you know, says to him, you need to love, you need to give away your possessions to the poor. And he wants to justify himself, the Bible says. And so he basically says, well, who is my neighbor? He wants to limit God, it's only reasonable for you to ask me to love only so much. So you either limit love to what is reasonable or you limit love to who it's reasonable to be asked to love. 
One of the, if you're trying to produce this in your own flesh, you will inevitably have to limit love in some way. I think another counterfeit, which a lot of people feel like they're really good at loving. Remember Dan Allender, this great counselor, saying one time, the worst, the worst thing is to be loved by somebody who's convinced they're really good at loving. Uh, we call this codependency. It's basically, you know, being attracted not to a person, but to how this person's love makes you feel about yourself. Needing to be needed. You know, people that think that they're loving sometimes are loving because of how it makes them feel. And you can tell when you don't like the way they're loving and you say something like, you're smothering me, you know, you're not loving me, right? This is another counterfeit, but it often looks like love, but you can wump this up. You can produce this in your own flesh. How does the gospel grow love in our lives? How? Generally, by God calling you to love people who are impossible to love. The best way to learn and to see love grow in your life is to fail at loving and cry out to God to help you. So if you, wanna, if you want to actually see this grow in your life, try to love somebody who's hard to love. Fail miserably at it and go to God and ask him, to teach you about his love, to give you his love. It actually says in 1 John that we love because he loves us. It actually, a lot of people think that it says that we love God because he first loved us. It actually doesn't say that. It says we love because he first loved us. All love is a reflection. It's not something that you manifest or wump up yourself. And one of the best ways to go deeper into the love of God for you is to realize that when God loves you, he loves somebody who's terrible at loving. Right? It's like Brother Andrew said one time, he, you know, he was asked about prayer, and he developed this amazing prayer life, and he said, as soon as I realized I was, I was really bad at prayer, um, then I got a whole lot better at prayer. <laughs> as soon as I quit thinking that I had it down, that I was good at it. As soon as you realize that you're not good at loving and you need God to help you, give you his love for somebody, you'll see love grow. Now, I'm going to skip over, jump down to peace. I want to talk about this one because I know we've had some talks about anxiety and that's an issue a lot of people wrestle with. So the Bible talks about peace here. The definition of peace, confidence and rest in the wisdom and sovereignty of God rather than in your wisdom and your sovereignty. Uh, the Bible actually says that there is a peace that comes into our life that's first and foremost objective. We have peace with God because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And then that peace, settling the issue of our relationship with God, should spread over, spill over into other places of our life. What are the weeds that seek to choke out peace? Anxiety and worry. Anxiety and worry. Like Martha in Luke chapter 10, you know, Martha and Mary. Um, Jesus says, you know, that basically you're concerned about many things but only one thing is needful. Anxiety and worry. Anxiety comes when we believe that we have to carry the weight of everything, and at the same time, we know that we're not up to the task. And we somehow seem to think that if we just think about it, we'll be able to scheme some way where we'll be able to be sovereign, or we'll be able to take care of things, and it won't work. But until you see it 
as spitting in the face of God's sovereignty and his kindness and his goodness, you won't really repent. You'll just keep trying to tweak it a little bit. You'll never have peace until you need the peace with God because you realize that you can't control your life. Right? The second is jealousy and envy. This is another weed. Jesus talks about this. You know, when Peter uh, looks at the Apostle John, Jesus tells Peter that basically he's going to be bound and hung somewhere, take somewhere he doesn't want to go. And Peter looks at the Apostle John and says, what about him? Right? What about him? And, P and Jesus says, don't you worry about him. It's not your business what about him. I think so often we feel like I could have peace if it wasn't for all these other people that have things I wish I had. That if only I had that, I would have peace. It's not true. And holding on to that is killing the fruit of peace in your life. What's the counterfeit? The counterfeit is apathy and indifference. There are a lot of people that seem very mellow, that seem very, quote-unquote, peaceful, because they don't care about anything. See, if it's really peace, then it coexists with joy. This is what I had to realize about self-control. I felt like I had self-control, but I didn't have joy. You can't selectively turn off some emotions. You can't kill off some emotions and not others. And God doesn't want you to. He wants you to be a whole human being, right? How does the gospel grow peace? By giving us faith in the sovereignty and love of God. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible is in 1 Peter 5, verse 6 and 8. It says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, so that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. If you really believe that God had a mighty hand, and that he cared for you. It would do a number on your anxiety. And you have to look at your anxiety and say, which is harder for me to believe, that he cares for me or that he has a mighty hand? Because for some, you might say, okay, I really do believe he loves me. I just don't know if he's able to take care of everything. Or other people are like, well, I, I just don't know. I know he can take care of everything, but I don't know if he really, really loves me enough to give me, you know, good things but he has a mighty hand and he cares for you that's an unbelievable combination and you have to use a verse like that and say lord print that on my heart come do battle against my fear and my unbelief and i confess that i struggle to believe you really have a mighty hand or i struggle to believe that you really care for me you got to own that to god and wrestle with him and ask him to give you faith let me just close this down because I know we've we went long, but I think it's been a good night. You know, the fruit is to be seen. And again, it's counterintuitive because you can't just look at this list and just start working on these traits like uh, Ben Franklin did. What you do is you go back and you let the gospel warm your heart. That's how the fruit is produced. But you also use this list to look at it and say, you know, I'm not sure this is happening in my life the way it should what's going on what weed might be going on there what fear what idol that I'm holding on to is is kind of blocking this from being more manifest the fruit is to be seen and that's that's the power 
of a community of people that are broken people that don't be like, hey, we've got all this down, but say, Lord, we see this list and we don't just see it as, as a list of things that we need to do. We see it as a promise of what you're going to do. Think about the fruit that way. Because it says in the Bible that he will complete the good work he began in you. So think about this. Here's the fruit. Here's this description of what holiness looks like. It's not only a description, a model, or a goal. It's God's commitment. It's God's promise to bring these things into your life. And this is who Jesus was. Think about Jesus on the cross and use that as the grid to run these things through. Think about Jesus on the cross manifesting the fruit of the Spirit beyond what it's ever been seen. Think of what it was like for Jesus on the cross to be the expression of God's love, his joy, his peace, his long-suffering. I like that better than forbearance. His kindness, his goodness, his faithfulness, his gentleness, his self-control. Because that's even more profoundly what this is a picture of. This is a picture of Jesus. And this is a picture of the character that took Jesus to the cross. And when you struggle to believe, I think that to the degree that you don't see these attributes in God, and particularly in Jesus, you, will, you won't see them in your life. In other words, you will be gentle to the degree that you understand that God is gentle towards you. And the best way to see that is not just to think about God up in heaven somewhere being gentle. It's to look at Jesus on the cross. And the more that that blows your mind, the more it will gentle you. Because you don't need to take power when you understand the gentleness of Jesus on the cross, right? You don't need to try to create your own peace by manipulating all your circumstances so that everything works out just like you want when you realize that Jesus gave up his peace so that you could never lose the peace that he weren't for you on the cross, right? You get that? So think about the fruit as a way to look at your life But don't fall into thinking that you can just produce it. You look at the gospel. You look at Christ on the cross. And in particular, look at the fruit expressed in Christ's life and fall more deeply in love with Jesus. Let's pray together. 